your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and yes, I've been holed up at home with a sprained ankle for weeks. I tell you, I just, oh, my eyes have, my eyes have just blurred permanently from watching the television. I watched last night the HBO production of Hemingway and Gellhorn. This is a major effort. Uh, they're trying to update the story of Ernest Hemingway. Um, uh, Gellhorn, Martha Gellhorn, was the third wife of the great American writer Ernest Hemingway. She was a um, great journalist in her own right, Martha Gellhorn. But, of course, uh, the world being what it is, it's Hemingway. Uh, everyone remembers he's the celebrity. Uh, it's, well, this is a love story about the war between man and woman. <laughs> the oldest story ever told. It begins with their meeting in 1936 in the uh, fascist Spain of uh, Fred Franco. You remember Franco. <laughs> and all the usual suspects. Um, you know, it's what Hemingway needed to create his novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Uh, uh, this is the kind of biopic in which the moment Hemingway says, uses the phrase, For Whom the Bell Tolls, one of his pals in the bar quotes John Donne's, the uh, the uh, old metaphysical poet, the one who wrote, uh, Send not to know uh, for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, right? Uh, Gary Cooper, however, was not on the scene, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> oh, nostalgia, but of course... Uh, as Hemingway says in this film, all writers are liars, today's writers, as well as uh, the writers of his day. What is original here is the extent to which modern actors are embedded in the old archival footage. The movie was shot in San Francisco and in Oakland, would you believe it? Uh, but... If you can, yeah, imagine Spain, Cuba, uh, China, uh, with, uh, what is it, San Francisco standing in for all those places and times. Uh, you see, you, you see the face of Nicole Kidman, she plays Martha Gellhorn. You see her face mirrored in a porthole of a ship, and 
It makes it appear that she's looking out over the sea at a convoy of ships, uh, World War II. Hmm. I don't know how history teachers feel about all this time travel. It bothered me years ago. I think the first time I was upset was that movie Ragtime. You know that it sometimes I get the Woody Allen effect, you know, the Zelig effect. Um, on the other hand, I'm going to have to get used to it. I guess we're going to have to live with it. Uh, seeing living actors all, what is that, uh, collaged in with all these archival uh, scenes. It's really magic, you know. Uh, we did get to see real archival footage of the Lincoln Brigade and all that um all those memory gems, yes, angst for the memory, for the time when idealists rushed to fight fascism. I was reading the other night Virginia Woolf, her sorrow over a nephew who rushed off to die in Spain. So many young people, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't dream of comparing them to the screwballs who rush off to fight for today's uh, idealists, fundamentalists. No, 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 don't go there. Anyway, uh, the scenes are fascinating, Martha Gellhorn says in the movie. You could take a, a streetcar <laughs> to the front, right? Take a cab to the uh, uh, to the front lines in Madrid. It was only a few blocks from the hotel. Uh, uh, she is a war correspondent for Colliers. Uh, she gets um, well. She said she never covered a war before, but <laughs> she she manages to get a letter and finds herself in the uh, inevitable journalist's bar with the rest of the boys, the ethical question arises, as always, as to whether they are there to write or to fight. Whether they want freedom or that high you get from all the Violence and excitement, uh, of course, for Hemingway, it seems to be both and. Um, I think sometimes the fog of war is assisted by the booze. Uh, think of the movie, Oliver Stone's movie, Salvador, you remember. Uh, there's a funny scene in Hemingway and Gellhorn when um, she manages to drink Hemingway under the table. I suppose that was... Uh, inevitable. Anyway, as a biopic, this movie is certainly sincere enough. I don't know about the sense of humor. We get two and a half hours of love among the ruins, well, sex among the ruins. Their first uh, sexual coupling takes place in a hotel room. Uh, it's being shelled. Uh, Bombs flying to plaster, falling on their naked bodies. The old sex and death. Same old, same old, actually. I was more impressed in the 1950s with a picture like uh, 
the French film Hiroshima Mon Amour. Of course, that was a metaphor. That was um, just the filmmaker mucking around, showing bodies melting in the uh, radiation, in the fallout from the atomic bombs. Uh, that was not real, of course, in any sense. It was just images. Uh, images of what was happening or did happen to the characters' souls at some point. Anyway, the actors Clive Owen and Nicole uh, Kidman certainly do their best in the leading roles. Uh, um, I think the unique portrayals uh, came from some of the um, minor uh, minor parts, but, uh, you know, all of Hollywood's best, I think, wanted to be in this show. HBO is now the cutting edge. Robert Duvall's Russian general is splendiferous, <laughs> especially when he gets um, soused in uh, Madrid and he makes a pass at uh, Gilhorn, and as a result, Hemingway demands uh, Russian roulette, right, yes. <laughs> Cowardice and competition are major themes here, I suppose, because it's the fashion these days to uh, question or examine the macho illusions of the Hemingway mystique. Uh, one, one item does, well, grace under pressure is the one phrase that does seem to hold up for a little while. Uh, David Strathorn plays John Dos Passos, uh, that depressive writer, uh, a thinker who can't reconcile his beliefs with the realities he encounters. He's more interested in getting, um, getting the irrigation going for the farmers. Uh, he's busy trying to get the movie made, Hemingway and, and, the rest of the boys are making a movie. Uh, Dos Passos is a tormented soul. Uh, he disappears early on. Hemingway is conflicted, but it certainly doesn't stop the fun. Uh, his manic pleasure, his appetite for life never quits. Yes, he has great appetite, if rather poor digestion, actually. Uh, Anyway, uh, there is more than metaphor a couple places. Um, his digestion, yes, his digestion is real. He finds some green herbs that settle his stomach. I can't remember whether it was parsley or um, uh, cilantro. Anyway, something he just picks up off the ground. That's a New Age footnote, yes. What's real during wars? How do you... Uh, how do you manage to eat your food without being sick? There's a lot of throwing up in this film. Uh, the trip, the script, tries to ground itself in details like that. Uh, little realities from the 1930s and 40s. Uh, I thought 
in a way that the the uh, the portrait of war correspondents uh, reminded me of uh, Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton in Reds. Now that was about the Soviet Revolution. Uh, you know, uh, two generations earlier. Uh, on the other hand, Diane Keaton's portrait of Louise Bryant. Uh, she was a, well, she was played flaky, actually. Gellhorn seems to have much more self-confidence, uh, until at some point she doesn't. Uh, Hemingway encourages her to write about humanity, about, um, the little things, you know, uh, the effects of war on ordinary people in Madrid. Gellhorn is shocked to find herself carrying a little boy uh, away from his murdered mother. She's soaked in blood, and it's Hemingway who has to tell her to go and wash off all the blood, that sort of thing. Um, Hemingway's second wife, Pauline, goes ballistic when she uh, encounters the adultery uh, between the two, and... She throws her Catholic beliefs at Hemingway. He's obviously oblivious to the uh, Catholic uh, side of things. I, I don't know whether Hemingway was ever serious about things like adultery, but uh, Pauline gets some of the best New Age lines, a lot of stuff about male privilege and his general... Uh, selfishness, all about Hemingway's competition with F. Scott Fitzgerald, how they measured their manhood, you know, apparently size mattered in those days. Pauline is um, done beautifully by the actress Molly Parker. She may be familiar to those of you who loved the series Deadwood. She played the Beautiful, refined lady, the lady of laudanum, yes. She starts out in Deadwood as a, a junkie. She was a laudanum addict, but she got better. Uh, Molly Parker, brilliant actress. Uh, anyway, Pauline has these two sons, and as historians know, she was a major support to Hemingway like his first wife, Hadley, right? Uh, these women were really his uh, his support structure. As uh, was often the case, women did most of the work in the uh, marriage, especially. Yes, uh, creativity must be nurtured, blah, blah, blah. Pauline's main point is that Hemingway told the world, say, that he was the better man, that Fitzgerald wasn't uh, as masculine as he, Hemingway. <laughs> yes, I, I like best the Gertrude Stein stories. Uh, Gertrude Stein certainly had Hemingway's number. But then, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think, actually, Gertrude Stein had a thing for Ernest. 
She cared enough to teach him a few things. She taught him to cut all the adjectives. He he typed her early manuscript, The Making of Americans. I think that's where he learned his succinct style, right? Uh, Hemingway, on the other hand, says that Gertrude Stein couldn't write dialogue. She learned that from him, he says. Anyway, the truth is the battle of the sexes is a lot more fun when you read about the uh, squabbles between Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway. I think maybe because she was so much older and not a sex object, as far as we know, they were equal in some ways. Uh, worthy opponents, let's say. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, finally, uh, they, what is it, they matched each other. But, of course, that was in the early days in Paris. Basically, um, maybe we could call it a mother-son relationship, but not quite. Alice Toklas was always jealous. Uh, that was, uh, Alice Toklas was... Gertrude Stein's significant other, Alice, got really angry sometimes. She would say to Gertrude, now don't you come home with Hemingway on your arm again, but that was long before Hemingway was Ernest Hemingway the Great. When he became famous, uh, it was a different story. As I say, uh, uh, he's the one that we still remember. He's the... uh, Celebrity to beat in the macho crowd. Uh, anyway, to enjoy this film, I focused on the stuff I love. You know, the cats at the house in the Keys. I remember, yes, they say that Hemingway loved cats, which is a vote in his favor for me. Uh, uh, Martha Gellhorn settled him for a while there in the... Uh, in the Keys and all that fishing and all those lovely bars with the stories. They had about nine years together. Uh, some of the most dramatic years in U.S. history. For people my age, those years are the crucible, a cauldron of chaos, uh, a time that destroyed our innocence forever, the end of World War II saw the United States becoming, well, I don't know, the dark birds of history still, still floating up there. I think of Robert Oppenheimer saying, I am become death, a destroyer of worlds, all that fear and world pain. Everything that came along with the bomb... 1945, everything that since has rendered us cold. The Cold War was won, in a sense. Anyway, uh, yes, I, uh, I see so many, so many people, uh, heartbroken today, left-wingers, Cynicism comes when you're tired of being ashamed. That era of Hemingway ended in the time of the good war, certainly a time of delusional thinking, and yet 
I suppose romantic delusions uh, are always with us. We always find a new delusion. We are illusion factories. My father loved Marlena Dietrich's songs. You remember that song. Have some lovely illusions. Slightly used. Second hand. Have some lovely illusions. All that bittersweet Berlin stuff like hell. Just plain bitter when I grew up. It was Joan Baez. She sang, love is just a four-letter word. Our new age spin on the war, that is, the eternal war. The war between the sexes, between the women and the men. Tried to tell us that the personal is political. <laughs> Nothing new there. Some of us thought that psychoanalysis would help us uh, get over that, heal from that, recover from all that. <laughs> we see that the global epidemic of rape as a weapon of war seems to be telling us, no, no, we are still these primal creatures uh, looking for an enemy. You remember Robert McNamara saying he could not think. Without an enemy, could not focus without looking for the enemy. So hard to explain that killing your enemy is not freedom. Anyway, today it's still all about this struggle progressives have. We all say we want the universal good. When what, of course, what we really want is to be loved alone, just loved for ourselves. That's W.H. Uh, Auden, you remember his great poem, written September the 1st, 1939. The error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. Just me, just me. We know that, of course, kind hearts try to understand, but it takes a really great soul to act for the benefit of others, to actually act on what we say we believe. That, of course, is Christ consciousness, but i got to be careful there. Somebody will say, ouch, fundamentalists, fundamentalists. <laughs> yes. Is there any war uh, more fundamentalist than the war uh, among, between religions? The only one that is more down-to-earth, older, more ancient, is the war between the men and the women so strange to try to understand why we antagonize our lovers. They need more than psychoanalysis to understand all this. Uh, <laughs> yes, sex and death stuff. Uh, I'm afraid that most of our literature is all about this struggle to love. 
to be loved, to love, which is hardest. Uh, war and peace, you know, uh, the untold story. How can a man come to worship in a woman's temple? How can a woman come to worship in his? Hmm. D.H. Lawrence tried, but it was no go in the end. Uh, Ernest Hemingway tried in, oh, let's say, A Farewell to Arms. You remember the death in childbirth. Uh, the woman he loves dies in childbirth, and I suppose it's analogous to a man dying in battle. I've heard military men say as much, uh, I don't know. Um, I had to laugh at one point in the film. Martha Gellhorn says, uh, uh, well, she's describing her response to the early film of Farewell to Arms. That's a very old one. Gary Cooper and Helen Hayes, you know. Uh, Martha Gellhorn, back in the day, she says, oh, Helen Hayes is miscast in the picture, in that role. And I would agree with her completely. It was because the filmmakers go for the feminine mystique, no matter what the book was all about. Every time they'll rewrite the damn thing so that we get, uh, uh, well, the beautiful suffering Madonna, the megalomasochist that Helen Hayes uh, portrayed. Unbelievably beautiful. I wept. <laughs> Even Jennifer Jones uh, did, uh, well, she gave a poor imitation, but it was very depressing, the later film, uh, really a downer. Uh, at least Helen Hayes was always beautiful, even if it was wrong. I'm thinking of Ingrid Bergman in For Whom the Bell Tolls. She was certainly breathtaking, uh, I think the haircut was what, yes, we all, all uh, got our haircut to match Ingrid Bergman in For Whom the Bell Tolls. She was utterly brave, but of course there we had the infantile stereotype. Uh, yes, the infantile stereotype when he puts her on the horse and oh, goes to his death. Anyway. Oh, that picture, it did have this fierce Spanish woman, the woman of Akim Tamaroff, right, yes. You make a big joke, Anglais. You remember Akim Tamaroff saying to Gary Cooper, I don't provoke, Anglais. I can't even try to imitate Akim Tamaroff. We loved him. What was her name? You see how well it works? The actress was unforgettable, and I've forgotten her name. What was it, Pia? She was uh, striking, and I can't think um, what her name was. If any of our listeners can remember the actress or the name of the fierce Spanish revolutionary in For Whom the Bell Tolls, the scene when she gives up on Pablo, Akim Tamaroff turns into this coward. He's a drunk, of course, but he sells out the revolution, right? Um, sooner or later, a woman must fight for herself and for her children, uh, her own people. Well, women want help, of course. We're desperate for help, but the last time I looked, 
It's still a man's world. Nothing much will change that. Not till men love the children more than they hate their enemies. The holistic uh, prophet Joseph Campbell used to say, Woman is life. And man is the servant of life. <laughs> Fat chance. Anyway, I guess we'll have to wait. Uh, we'll have to wait another, another millennium. Uh, I read that, uh, well, I have a long story here about Dorothy Parker's visit to Hemingway, and I don't have time to tell it. Oh, yes. Hemingway took a bite out of her, Hemingway's canine, his dog, took a bite out of Parker's little dog. I'll have to save that for next time. Oh, dear. Uh, oh, shoot. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. Uh, it's Gail Horn and Hemingway, or the other way around. It'll be on HBO for weeks and weeks. And the director... Uh, Philip Kaufman, he will be on the other radio station. Right, he'll be on uh, KQED Thursday morning between 9 and 11. Uh, just to let you know about that. Till next Tuesday at this time, go easy. And if you can't, go easy, go as easy as you can. original voice of sanity in a chaotic world. That's how Howard Zinn described Derek Jensen, an urgent, stunningly original, eloquent voice of the deep ecology movement. Derek Jensen is author of Endgame, The Culture of Make-Believe, A Language Older Than Words, and many other passionate meditations.